Good morning, everybody. It's my privilege this morning to uh, proclaim the good news of the gospel. Uh, we're gonna, like uh, like Pastor Lou just said, we're we're in the last chapter of John, John chapter twenty-one, and our series title has been the gospel according to John, the invisible made visible. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, then I'm going to dismiss the teachers and the and the kids for uh, children's church this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter twenty-one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, make sure you get one of them from the back. Uh, you can keep it if you don't have one. If you do have one of those, it's on page 529. Happy to look at it this morning. So it's on ch- uh, page 529. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got in the boat, and, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the, on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, he put on his outer garment, for he stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with the fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I'm going to go ahead now and take, take a moment and just dismiss uh, the children and their teachers to Children's Church this morning. We've been trekking through John for quite a while now, and we've, we've, we started out with the prologue, and now this week we're at the epilogue, the very uh, conclusion of his book uh, here, his, his account of the narrative of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and he opens his narrative, as we, if we were to just kind of take a moment to look back at the prologue, the first 18 verses of his book. And here, John introduces us to the eternally existent Logos, uh, the Word of God. And we're told that the Word of God that he's talking about has eternally been existent and in relationship with God, the Father, before the world began. In fact, he goes on to say that this word of God actually is the agent of creation, meaning that he created everything, and everything comes into being and is sustained by his, by his power. So he's the source of all that exists. There's not anything in this world that can be perceived, that can be studied, that can be detected, or maybe those things even that are undetected, nothing that does not owe its existence to the word of God. And then John goes on to say, something pretty remarkable. He says the, the one who authored creation, the divine author, actually writes himself into his creation. And what we see is that this, the word of God comes in flesh, puts on flesh, becomes a human being. And that's where we see 
the invisible has been, been made visible to us. John doesn't keep us in suspense as to who that is. He tells us that this God-man is Jesus Christ. He says uh, in uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and then 17, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So John sets the stage there, and then he continues throughout his gospel by showing us that Jesus has um, intentionally discloses himself to those he comes in, into contact with. Sometimes it's plain. Sometimes he says things like, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And that, uh, that definitely got the Jewish leader's attention. They knew exactly what he, was, what he was saying. That's why he picked up stones to kill him. It's because he was claiming to be Yahweh, the one who disclosed himself to Moses at the burning bush. In, in, in Exodus chapter 3. And he's also the same God who generations even before Moses had first called Abraham to himself to say that he was going to be the father of many nations and that he would make a people for himself. And then other times, Jesus discloses his identity uh, in other ways, like uh, in parabolic form or in metaphor. So he uses the metaphor, for instance, of saying that he is the bread of life in John chapter 6. Or he goes on to say in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd, right, who lays down his life for his sheep. And still other times, he will disclose his identity through signs, through miracles, right? So we have the, uh, the example of the, blind, the, the man who was born blind, who Jesus gave sight to, or the, or the man who was a paralytic for 38 years, and then Jesus heals him in an instant. Or uh, one dramatic way, uh, if that wasn't dramatic enough, he actually brings Lazarus back from the dead. So that, that's, the, these are some other ways that... that that Jesus has disclosed his identity to us. But this all leads, though, John, he, he continues this on until the climax of his, of his book, of his, of his narrative here, when he shows that Jesus actually accomplishes uh, what he set out to do, God's plan of redemption, right? He, uh, he and the Father and the, whole, and the God, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, had predetermined before the world was even created that on the cross, Jesus would pay the price for our redemption, for all those who believed. On the cross, we see Jesus simultaneously uh, suffers the violence of humanity. He also takes on the full weight of humanity's sin, and he also takes on the punitive wrath of God that we deserve. The Apostle Paul actually uh, goes on to describe that same message that John's pointing us to in Colossians chapter 2. So they agree on this point, on what the the gospel is. This is what it is. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's in, that's in Jesus and his cross. So the cross, by the world standards, would look like defeat, but what we see, what, what we're told, uh, is that the cross was victory. And that's what the disciples are, are coming to grips with. They're coming to understand more and more as they continue to see the risen Lord. Right? And, that's, and that's, if you remember last week, we talked about Thomas and when he came to this realization, right? And what did, what did uh, he declare when he saw Jesus, was he saw the risen Lord finally? He said, my Lord... And my God. And I imagine he probably fell at his feet too. He doesn't say that in text, but how else could you have worshipped Jesus in his presence 
uh, in his glorified form without falling to your feet, right? Or falling to your, for your knees and to your, and to your face. So, speaking of Thomas, then we, 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 that's, that, and that's exactly what John tells us about, about what Thomas had done, so that we would come to the same conclusion about Je- who Jesus is. That we would see him in all clarity. And then we would also, ourselves, humbly bow before his lordship and worship him as well. So I ask you, have you come to that same place in your life? Where have, you, have you seen and experienced the risen Lord? Thomas makes another appearance this week in, in the epilogue here in John's, uh, what we hear in, in this account, these first 14 verses here. Uh, and now, just so that we're all on the same page, and a prologue we've talked about comes before the story, or at the very beginning of the story. The epilogue is something that comes after, or advances the conclusion. Uh, sometimes it tells a little bit about, it wraps things up, some loose ends. Maybe it tells you about what a character happens after uh, the, the story ends, as you see at the like, end of the movie when uh, the, the screen text comes up and tells you what happened immediately following this. Um, I ran into an interesting example of one of these uh, this, uh, a couple weeks ago. I was in the New York State Museum. I was on lunch. I was, I was in downtown in Albany for, for, uh, for something that was going on for work. And I was walking around, just strolling around, looking at the museum. I haven't been there in years. And I came across this, this really interesting exhibit called uh, Hudson Valley Ruins. And what it was was these, these pictures, and sometimes it was uh, actually pieces taken from these different buildings that had, uh, have been around um, since the beginning of, um, of, of the Hudson Valley region's um, industrial growth and everything. So you see all these pictures about what they look like now and how they're kind of demolished to some degree, or you know, they have, they're falling into disrepair. And under, underneath each of those captions, it tells you a little bit about what it looked like or what it, how it functioned in its heyday. Well, then I got to the very end of the exhibit, and I saw this last plaque, and it said, Epilogue. And then it read this. Of the more than 50 sites pictured in this exhibition, 20 have vanished or been adversely uh, impacted since these photographs were taken. That's the key word. That's, that's what an epilogue is, right? So we have the story about what these buildings are, but then we have this, what's happened since these photo, photographs were taken. And that's what's going on in John chapter 21. That's what, that's what John is giving us. He's to get an epilogue uh, after the story, at the conclusion of the story, to wrap up some things. Uh, and, but the question remains, why did he feel it necessary to do that? And he seems like he wraps it up pretty well uh, at, at, the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter 20 when he gives us Thomas's uh, realization, his worship, right? And he also then gives us the purpose of the book again, makes it very plain and clear. So uh, I think there's a few things going on here. I think there's a few reasons why. One of them is that he wants us to tell what happens to Peter about his restoration, right? Remember that Peter on, uh, on Good Friday uh, denied his, his Lord three times? Um, so we see that the Lord is not done with him yet. He's offering him restoration. And then John also wants to clear up maybe some rumors about the fact that he would remain alive, until, until Jesus Christ came the second time. So he's clearing up some of those kind of issues that are going on. But, but what, that doesn't answer about what our text about, about, about our text this morning, the first 14, 14 verses. So I want to answer that question this morning under three headings. Under, number one, a failed ex- expedition, a miraculous catch, and then lastly, a lakeside breakfast. So a failed expedi- expedition, miraculous catch, and a lakeside breakfast. So let's first look at a failed fishing expedition of the disciples. So we're at the, t- the time where uh, the Passover had ended. If you flash back a little bit, we were in Jerusalem. That's where, that's where the disciples were, celebrating the Passover with Jesus in, in, in 
and into his crucifixion as well. And at, at this time, all those who had made the pilgrimage into Jerusalem uh, and that live elsewhere are now just are going back to their homelands where they, where they were from, their homesteads. And that includes the disciples as well. So they're, they're going back out. So a lot of them, they lived in, in, in Galilee, the, that area. And we're told that seven of them are here this morning that, that we're looking at. Um, they're not here this morning. They're in the text this morning. They're not here. But some of them are on the text this morning. And uh, we don't know sure where the other, the other ones are, the other four. But we know that Peter's there, Thomas is there, Nathaniel, uh, the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, uh, John being the one that authored this, and then two others that John doesn't name here. And, and some of the commentaries I read this week were actually pretty rough on the disciples. They, they uh, suggested that they were actually being disobedient. They were out fishing when they should have been fishing for men, right? They should have been on gospel mission rather than just uh, in Galilee on a fishing trip. But after looking it over, and uh, I, think, I think Matthew 28.10 kind of clears that up. It says something very, uh, the opposite of that. It says that they're actually in Galilee precisely because they were told by the risen Christ to go there, to meet him there. If you remember, I mean, if, you just, uh, if you were to look at this this week, or, you know, sometime take a, take a moment to read it. But in, in that chapter, what happens is the women who first saw the risen Christ or the empty tomb, and they were met on their, on their way back to see the disciples. And they are met by the Christ, the risen Christ, and they are told um, to go and to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. It says, do not, they, he told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So they're in Galilee, not because they were, they were being disobedient, but because they were actually being obedient. Right? And remember also, the reason they're not on uh, the gospel mission in the same way that we'll see them flourishing and passionately uh, Declaring the gospel in Acts is because Pentecost has not yet happened, right? So we've got to keep that in mind as well. They had not yet been filled by the Holy Spirit, and they're still awaiting that promise of the Helper, of the Advocate, of the Holy Spirit, who will be with them forever. Jesus told them this, this in John chapter 14 when they were at, the, at the, uh, the Last Supper together. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So it doesn't mean, though, that just because the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out on them on Pentecost yet, that the Spirit was somehow absent or inactive, right? We just read two weeks ago that Jesus breathed on them and says, and he says, behold, you know, um, I give you the Holy Spirit, right? Receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is here, and, and he is fulfilling his role, God the Holy Spirit, by reminding them that all that Jesus had taught them. And he's also cultivating in their hearts and their minds a proper Christology, meaning who the Christ is, what the Bible says the Christ is, and that he is the fulfillment of those prophecies of the Messiah. So the dramatic outpouring yet had, had not happened. That was still to come. So that's why I think it seems that they're kind of still living impulsively or, or maybe a little bit aimlessly, uh, is because they're still waiting for that to happen. And it's during this time we see that Peter comes to, uh, to the disciples that are with him. He says, let's go fishing. And they, they all say, yeah, we'll go with you. And so I, I think also it's, it's, it's proper to understand the fact that they're, they're, they're not doing it just for a guy's night out to have some fun. Uh, I think it's that they're really looking to, uh, to make some money, looking to, to fill their pantry with food. You know, they, they need to eat. We all need to eat, right? We can kind of understand that. So <clears throat> um, that's, what that's what they're doing in, 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 this, in this text this morning. So... They go out, but yet we, we read that they're not fruitful in their endeavor, right? They, they come back with no fish. And, 
And so we kind of asked the question, well, why? Why is that? I mean, they were, they were fishermen by trade. I mean, they had done it all their life. They knew all the best places to fish. They knew that night was the best time to go fishing, and that's why they were out at nighttime. So what, what, uh, what prevented them from, from getting the fish? Well, I think it's not because that they were simply out of practice and they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, it was that something really was truly preventing them from, from catching the fish. Let's look at verse 4 and 5 and get an idea as to what's going on here. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. I think the NASB actually does a better job translating uh, this, this question that Jesus asked them because uh, it's posed in a way, really, that, that um, is expecting a, a negative response. What it really should say or read is children, or in our way we would use our jargon nowadays, would be, hey, guys, you, know, you don't have any fish, do you? So here Jesus is actually asking them, knowing that, He's, he's waiting for them to, to give a negative response. So we see a little indication here, another reminder of, of the, the omniscience, the all-knowing power of Jesus Christ, that he doesn't need to ask this question in order to gain information that he doesn't already possess. He already knows all, all that he needs to know. Not, and I think we could go even further than that and say that it's not just that he is all-knowing, but I think he is the one who sovereignly withheld the fish from being caught in those nets that, that, uh, that evening that he was actually the one who kept the fish out of their nets. He was standing in the way of their, uh, of their um, expedition here. And, and now what he's doing is he's, he's, he's showing them that they need to admit their failure. That's what he's asking. He, he wants them to admit their failure. Now, this is probably coming at, at the worst time imaginable, right, for them. I mean, they're frustrated. They're probably hungry. Uh, they're exhausted. And I think the last thing they wanted to hear is someone asking, hey, you didn't catch anything, did you? You know, it was, I'm sure it was more than a little uh, annoying and irritating, right? But they can't help but answer no. I mean, that's, they, have to, they have to admit their answer no. And so all we get is just one word, but I'm sure there's other words going on in their mind. I mean, at least it would have been in my mind, too. Um, so maybe. So we, I think it shows that we can, we can relate to the disciples, right? I mean, we don't like to admit our failures either. It's, it, it, we don't want people to, to know that we failed, it makes us look bad, right? It, we don't like to admit that we're ignorant about something or that we made a mistake, we have limitations, that we've, we've got faults. And how about this? How about even uh, when you fail at something that you're really, really good at, right? Something that you're so good at that it, it's actually become part of your identity, like these fishermen, right? I mean, they're fishermen, they can't even catch fish. I mean, what, what's, what's that about? So, I think we can all relate to the disciples to some degree in failure and that we don't like to admit the failure that we have, but yet we have it. We work, we work hard, maybe, for, for things. We look for a certain outcome to happen, but it doesn't happen. Uh, we don't get the job we were hoping to get, or maybe you were passed up for the promotion. Uh, maybe you didn't make the grade you're looking for, or you're seeking ad, admiration or maybe just approval from someone you deeply care about and you love. You, you work hard in order to gain their approval, and then we're... Uh, we're uh, in despair because we didn't get that. We didn't get that from our wife, from our husband, from our mom, from our dad. So this is a good, good place to introduce the gospel because the gospel tells us that no matter where we are, whether we've been successful in the world standards or not successful, that we're all colossal failures. And that's, that's not an easy thing to, to recognize, but that's, that's exactly what the truth is. And that we 
our failures because why? Because we, we failed to herald Jesus Christ as being the king over our lives, the king over the universe. And we take to the laws that he's given us and we malign those laws and we establish for ourselves as our, our own kind of man-made religions. We're, we're the gods of our own universe so we can do anything we want. And, that, and what we do is we toil after those things that we think are going to give us meaning purpose. We toil for, for things, for power, for, for, for money, for, for might, or for uh, admiration from other people, for fame. And then when we fail or when something stands in the way of us getting what we desire, we can't grasp it, then we get depressed, we get angry, right? We, maybe we're a little confused. So I ask, is that your situation this morning? Does that speak to you? Does that resonate with you? Does it seem like no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you can't grasp that thing that you're, you're really hoping for, that you've, you can't live without? Or maybe you've, you've, you're at the point where you're deciding, should I just give up? Or maybe you already have given up. Or maybe you're on the other side of the coin, the flip side of the coin, which is maybe you have experienced success in, your, in the way that you understand success in, in your standards, and, or maybe by the world standards. If that's the case, then what are you attributing your success to? Is it to your own self-effort, uh, or is it to God? Are you satisfied by what you've achieved, or are you always looking for that next best thing? But well, here's, the, here's what the good news is, is because when the disciples were at that situation of, of being confused and discouraged and uh, depressed, not to mention exhausted, that's when Jesus shows up, Right? He shows up and he reveals himself with this miracle that we see. He's, and, he, and, and what I want to point out is that in this miracle, he's, he's reteaching them, because he's taught them before, he's reteaching them that their identity is not, is not forged in anything that they can do on their own. It's forged in him. And it's he who is going to give them purpose for living uh, this life, and, and, it's that, and it's through the gospel. So let's take a look at the second point this morning, which is <clears throat> a miraculous catch. So we're at the point now, going back to the disciples, they are at the point where they had to admit that they were failures, and Jesus yells back at them and tells them, throw your net, cast your net on the right side, which, or the starboard side, is what it's called, I found that out this week, I don't know anything about, about sailing, but I guess it's the starboard side. Um, so, he, so throw them off, throw it out, and you're going to get plenty of fish there. He's not saying you might get fish, he says cast the fish on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And sure enough... Once they obey and they, and they cast it out, then they end up with 153 large fish. And it's at this point that John, who's writing this account, comes to the realization as to who that unidentified person is on the shore is. It's Jesus. He says, it's the Lord. And then Peter, good old Peter, right? He, right on cue, he, he gets himself ready, and uh, he ties a coat around him. He jumps in the water, and he's, he's off. He's off to go see his Lord. He's off to go see Jesus. He can't wait another moment to get there. That's all, his mind, all that's on his mind is that single focus of going and seeing Jesus Christ, his Lord. And it's kind of like chapter 20 all over again, right? When, you, when we see John and Peter, again, they're, they're rushing to the empty tomb once they've heard the testimony of the, of the women that were there. And when they get there, John looks in, peeks in, he gets there first, but it's, not, it's Peter who steps in and says, I have to get inside and see it for myself. Right? It's, it's in keeping with their personalities that we see that's happening here. Uh, quick aside, too. Um, 
I was a little, I'm not sure, but I was a little confused as to why Peter put something on, a coat on, before he jumped in the water. Because that seems to me a little counterintuitive, right? That typically you take something off, so you have nothing that's keeping your arms and legs uh, burdened so that you can, you can easily maneuver while you're in the water. Well, the real reason for this is there's, it's a cultural reason. It, it was, he had been stripped down for work, so he was probably just in a, in a loincloth, so he could, he could maneuver, maneuver his arms and legs while he's fishing. And uh, what, what we know about the culture at the time, the Jewish custom, was that you, if you were to greet anybody, especially somebody of honor, you would make sure you were completely clothed. If you didn't, if you weren't clothed uh, completely, then it was a, a, it was a sign of dishonor. It was, it, was a, it, was, it was a lewd act, in a sense. It was considered improper. So we know that Peter wasn't about to just greet his Lord without first making sure that he honored him by dressing himself really quickly. And then that's why we see that he ties it around his waist and jumps in, because then he wants to, to swim more effectively. <clears throat> but having said that, and, and looking at the realization that John has, we also have to wonder if there's not another little deja vu going on here. Uh, there was another similar situation that happened to them a few years earlier, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he calls them for the first time. In Luke chapter 5, we read about Jesus being on the shore of Galilee, which is, this is the same body of water he's at in John chapter 21, and this is earlier in his ministry. Now he's, sitting, he's standing at the same lake here, lakeside, and fishermen are, have come in, and they have toiled all night and have no fish to show for any of their efforts. And uh, he tells them, go back out, relaunch your boats, and cast out your nets, and you're going to get some fish this time. And Peter, the ever-outspoken leader, says... Uh, uh, we've been out all night, but, you know, he's, he, he says, oh, well, we're Lent. He relents, and he says, well, we'll go back out. And sure enough, goes back out, and they cast their nets out, and they, and they get lots of fish. This time, there's two large nets that are, that are filled and to the breaking point, and the, and the boats themselves are about to sink because there's so many of them. So they catch this, this, this huge load of fish, and then Peter, we see in Luke chapter 5, his... his uh, his response is that he finally realizes that this, this man that was told him to go launch the ships again is none other than the one who controls the seas and the one who, who, is, uh, who manages all the living creatures, including those under, under the seas. And he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, in Luke 5.8. 5, 5, and then what does Jesus do? He offers him peace. And then he declares that Peter, James, and John, right, some of the same ones that are here in our passage this morning, uh, he says that you are, have a new purpose in life. You have a new master. You have a new identity. It's in me, and you're going to fish for, for people. You're not going to fish for fish any longer. So if we see in Luke 5, if, that, if we equate that to, the, to being their calling, then in, in, in John chapter 21, we're really seeing that Jesus is reminding them of their calling. He's reminding them that the kingdom of God has, has inaugurated, has been inaugurated, and that just as the, the dawning of the new day had come uh, after this, this night in Galilee, now also a new age has begun. And that where the darkness of sin had once ruled and had once reigned and had sway, now the light of the, of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, is, is shining brilliantly. So let me boil this down, this point down, and just and put it this way. In this miracle... In this sign that Jesus has, uh, has done for the disciples, that he's telling them that from now on, their lives are no longer going to be fraught with fruitless labor. He's invited them to instead participate in his mission, and he will empower them to fulfill that mission, which is to, 
to declare the gospel to the world. And their work in the gospel will not be in vain. Right? And, and through their efforts, by, their, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they're going to continue the ministry of Jesus to seek and to save lost sinners. But it's going to come by abandoning their self-dependence. Just as he taught them in the upper room that without me you can do, you can do nothing, he's also teaching them that again this time experientially rather than just verbally. And it does, that doesn't end with them, praise God. I mean, that, that's the reason why we're here this morning, that the same is true for the church today, here in Glenmont and, and throughout the world, that the, the gospel-declaring church is God's means of gathering his people from around the world, from, from all tribes, from all times, from all places, and for all, from all uh, types of people, backgrounds, traditions, races. And it's going to be all for his glory that he, that he gathers them together. And it's our mission as the church to be the light to live in light of the gospel. And it becomes our heart's desire now that others would see Jesus as who he is and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we have that, we have that privilege now of participating in, that, in the advancement of the gospel. And all of our efforts to that end will never be in vain. And that's what Paul concludes as well in his letter to the Corinthians. He reminds them of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 58 says... The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What task, you think about it, what task have you ever been given where success was guaranteed that there was not going to be failure right there's none nothing except for the gospel and and the reason for that is because the declaration of the gospel and the and, and, and the transformation of the human heart is not going to be done by our own human centered weak uh, efforts it's it's already been done by Christ's work on the cross it's going to be done by his empowerment and God, as we know, his plans, his purposes never fail. But I also want to point out that though it is God's who's doing, uh, bringing the harvest, right? It doesn't mean that we just sit idly by, right? And as though we're not, as we know, we're not part of it somehow. That that uh, by doing that, by just sitting idly by, we're we are just uh, well, we're in disobedience, right? We're disobeying the Lord's command to go and to make disciples. But it also, it means that we're losing out on all the blessings that come by faithfully declaring and demonstrating the gospel. To use Paul's illustration in 1 Corinthians, he says that when we are on intentional gospel mission, that we're living our lives, right, and, and always possible to advance the gospel and, and to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world, we are we're planting and we're watering, but then it says that, Jesus, it says that God, through Jesus Christ, is, is, is causing the growth. Right? So we're not responsible for the results. We're responsible to go and to be faithful. We're responsible for remaining faithful no matter what the outcome looks like in our eyes, in our, inf- in our f- finite uh, perspective. So this is the, defin- this is the definition of success that, that Jesus is giving the disciples. He's given to us as well. I also want to point, point out, too, that it doesn't mean that any effort that we take is going to be uh, is going to be successful or prosper just by saying that by somehow applying God's name to it or giving Jesus props that somehow then we're going to get the success that we're that we're looking for. 
uh, the kind of success that, that, that uh, like looking for a comfortable, luxuri- luxurious lifestyle or, or, or having success by the world standards. That's, that's not what he's teaching here. That's not what the Bible teaches uh, at all. You know, no matter what you think Philippians 4.13 says, that's not what it's teaching. What, what's, what he is teaching is that the only word that can be performed that is never futile that has lasting eternal value is the proclamation of Jesus' victory on the cross. That's what he's teaching. And, and his work has accomplished something that's far more valuable than anything the world could ever offer. Salvation and the purchase of his church by, by the shedding of his blood. I also want to point out too, just to give a little caveat as well, is that it doesn't mean that when we're living on gospel mission, that we're proclaiming the gospel, that it's not going to be met with criticism, with ridicule, that there's not going to be hate or slander coming our way. We're not going to suffer in that way. We're not going to, that we're, we are still going to suffer those, those things. Jesus promised that would happen. We'd lose relationships. We'll get slandered and ridiculed, uh, some even to the point of death. Uh, it means that, though, when I love somebody, when I love the lost, and it's returned with hate... I can still remember and be comforted by the fact that I am loved by God. And that it's my my faithfulness toward Him that's going to bring Him glory. It's not to earn His favor, don't get me wrong. It's not not that we do that, we remain faithful so that we could earn His favor. It's, it's, It's not that. It's that instead, because I already have peace with God, because of what He's accomplished, and because I have favor with Him already as a child, and because I am as secure in His love for me, I am then empowered by His love. I am empowered by His Holy Spirit to live faithfully for Him. And uh, that brings me to our third point this morning, the final point. We've seen a failed expedition. We've seen a miraculous catch. And now we're going to look at a lakeside breakfast. So going back to what Peter... Peter's situation here, he can't hold in his enthusiasm, right? He's got, he's got to go and see his Lord. He jumps from the boat, he swims ashore, he leaves the six others there to take up the fish and bring them to shore. And as John points out too, that Jesus' miracles it seems to extend beyond just the mere catching of the fish. He also, uh, the miracle actually goes uh, to the, into the fibers uh, of that net as well. It's, the, the, it's being kept intact despite the, the weight of all those fish that are in there. And once they arrive on shore, all of them, they see, they see Jesus has already has a fire for them to warm themselves by, and that he's cooking breakfast for them. And, uh, and all I can think of is it's got to be an, a most amazing aroma after having fished all night and having nothing to show for it, being tired, being exhausted, and here Jesus is serving them. He's, he's making them breakfast. And then Jesus tells, tells them to go, get, get the fish that you've caught. That I've provided. Bring it, bring it to shore. Bring it to me. And evidently we see here, here's an indication that, that, that Peter was kind of a beast of a man because he was able to go on and, and haul it all in by himself when it took six guys to try to bring it to shore. He just goes in and just pulls them all, off himself. And then Jesus invites them to breakfast after that, after they, he come to, they come to shore and they bring the, the fish to shore. So there's a few things that we can, I think we can learn from this, this breakfast that's going on that, this, that he invited his disciples to partake in. And just so we don't miss the obvious, I think the first thing that John wants to know, in fact, he, he says the word revealed over and over again in this passage at the very beginning, in verse 1 and also in verse 14, is that Jesus is revealing himself to them again, yet again. In his resurrected, glorified form, he's revealing himself to them. As one commentator put it, and I like this, the way he put it here, the first and simplest aim of the story 
is to make quite clear the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection was not a vision. It was not a figment of somebody's excited imagination. It was not the appearance of a spirit or a ghost. It was Jesus who had conquered death and who had come back. So the resurrected Christ was still a wonder to them. It shows that even after having seen him this third time, the third time at least that John records, they're still in awe of this risen, of their risen Lord. He had already visited them twice in Jerusalem. Now he's with them in Galilee, and, and they're still left awestruck. And that's why I think they're, we see they're, they're kind of eating this breakfast with Jesus in silence. And by the way, this is the, this is the only time that we see the resurrected Lord eating a meal with his disciples. Uh, over in Luke, we see that at the, at the first time that he meets them, he eats a, a piece of broiled fish. And I think there's to show the reality of the resurrection and also the, the glorified physicality that he possessed. But here we actually see him uh, eating a meal with his disciples, having a, having a meal with them. And like I said, they're eating in silence because I think they're still taking in the reality of the, of, of the moment. It must have seemed like a dream to them that was, fi- that was, that was coming true, becoming more and more reality the more they saw him. Now he's sitting alongside them. He's serving them breakfast by the, by the water there. And they're starting to understand the reality of his triumph over death. It's becoming more and more real to them. Notice in verse 12, too, it says that none of, the, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So I think there, there's an indication here that there's something astonishingly, astonishingly new, something new about, about Jesus uh, that they, they, they didn't quite they didn't quite recognize, but at the same time, they're yet experiencing the familiarity of his tender love toward them, of his kindness toward them, of his, of his lordship over them as well. And, I, and when I think about that, I think, you know, uh, 2,000 years removed from that, that moment, um, when I think about the coming of Christ, when he returns for us too, we will finally see him. I think we'll, we'll also be in awe. We'll also be silently in awe of who he is when we look on the one who has suffered so much for us, right? And who has shed his blood and redeemed us by his blood. One of my favorite passages is First, first Peter chapter 1, when, when Peter touches on the subject a little bit. He, uh, he's writing as one who has seen the risen Christ, right? He's writing to those under his care who have, have not seen the Christ, but yet have believed that sounds like us today, those who have believed but not yet seen. He says this, that they will, he mentions that they will experience the same degree of joy, they do experience the same degree of joy that he experiences as, as one who has even seen the risen Christ. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with great joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For those who, who do believe, who have responded to the gospel, we, all, we await Christ's return with great joy. There's, there's joy in knowing Jesus. There's joy in having a relationship with him now. And we, will, we also see this, this passage, and it would be, that would be that much more exuberant when we see him, but we also see in this passage that there's great joy that we get to experience also as we see the incredible work of God's transformative power through the gospel realized in the lives of those around us. Jesus showed his love for the disciples, we see, first by sovereignly preventing them from, having, from, uh, from uh, uh, catching the fish, and then he shows them love by providing the fish for them. 
So, and he did that to, to teach them to fully rely on him, to continue to depend on him rather than their own efforts. And now what we're seeing is that he's inviting them to a breakfast to eat with him, to partake of a meal that he had prepared with the fish that he had provided. And when you think about that, how incredible it must have been for them, and, and as we look at it, how it applies to us as well, that the, the God of the universe saves us, invites us to participate in his mission, sends us on mission for him, with him, but he also invites us to share in the blessings that come from or come out of the gospel mission. That's, that's the picture that he's showing his disciples here this morning. He's, he's, he's allowing them to taste in his success. Literally tasting the success in, 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 the, in the form of broiled fish. He knew the success tasted like broiled fish. But for them it did that, that, uh, that day. But that's, that's what he's showing us as well. And that we as a church who are living on mission get to experience the joy that comes with seeing others come to faith in Christ. We get to share in the excitement of God breathing new life into a dead heart. Cold, dead heart. Bringing a, a heart from stone to a heart of flesh. And Paul mentions this as well. He talks about this kind of joy in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So what he's saying here, what Paul's describing, is that as he lives intentionally for the gospel, on gospel mission, to exalt Christ and to reach all those that he's around by any means possible with the gospel, that he gets to share in the joy of expressing it, but also also to share in seeing others come and respond to that. And that's what Christ does. He is the one who brings the responses in. And it increases his joy in Christ when he sees people come to faith in him. So let me, let me end by asking just a few questions here this morning. Have you experienced that kind of joy have you experienced the joy of, of knowing Christ and the joy of living on mission with him? If you're a Christian, have you forgotten that, you, as Jesus says, you can do nothing without me? Without me, you can do nothing. Is God teaching you today, today reminding you to rely on and depend upon him and not your self-efforts? If he is, then you're not alone because he's been teaching that to me all week. And he's, he, he's been faithful in, in providing all that I need. If, that, if that's you this morning, then my offer to you or my statement to you would be to repent and remember the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for you, that he loves you. If you're not a believer and you're experiencing maybe the futility of, uh, of material success or maybe you're in despair because of failure in your own life, there's nothing that, that you can do to, to overcome the lack of, of fulfillment or of purpose in your life. You'll, you can only find that in Jesus Christ, the one who made you, and the one who accomplished everything for you because of his love for you, accomplished much for you on the cross. So if he, is, is Jesus revealing himself to you this morning in a new way, in that way, that he is who he says he is? He's the son of God who, who alone can forgive sins and bring you into reconciliation with the Father? If, if he is, then I say this to you, repent and believe the, the gospel. Come to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for not hiding it from us, keeping the gospel a mystery, but you have made it plainly to us that we can know who you are. We have the privilege of coming before you and worshiping you uh, with our lives.
I pray that you continue to work the work of uh, understanding better who you are and, 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 and the fact that you are here. You, you are providing all that we need to be successful in gospel mission. And I pray you would continue to mold us and change us and help us to come to the realization that um, we get to participate in the advancement of the gospel and, and help us to, to experience the joy that comes with doing that. Uh, and that would be enough until the day that you come back for us and we will see you and we will hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the place that I prepared for you before the foundation of the world were established. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.